Section 33 of Lucretia Borgia by Ferdinand Gregorovius. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Emily Maynard. Book 2, Chapter 11, Last Years and Death of Venozza. In the same year that her father's last son appeared at her court, Lucretia also learned of the death of her mother. Venozza was already a widow when Alexander VI died. During his last illness, she had placed herself under the protection of the troops of her son Caesar. This she was able to do, as he himself was sick at the same time. There are documents in existence which show that immediately after Alexander's death, and while the papal throne was vacant, she was living in the palace of the Cardinal of San Clemente in the Borgo. As Caesar was compelled to betake himself to Nepi, she accompanied him thither, and on the election of Piccolomini she returned to the papal city. She did not follow her sons to Naples, but remained in Rome, where affairs became normal after the election of Rovere to the papacy. The retainers of the Borgia feared that certain suits would be brought against them. March 6, 1504, a chamberlain of Cardinal Sant'Angelo, who had been poisoned, was condemned to death and in a loud voice he proclaimed that he had committed the murder on the explicit command of Alexander and Caesar. Cardinals Romolini and Ludovico Borgia at once fled to Naples. Don Micoletto, the man who executed Caesar's bloody orders, was a prisoner in the castle of Sant'Angelo. The Venetian ambassador, Justinian, informed his government in May 1504 that Micoletto was charged with having caused the death of a number of persons, among them the Duke of Gandia, Verano of Camerino, Astore and Ottaviano Manfredi, the Duke of Bizelli, the youthful Bernardino of Sermoneta, and the Bishop of Cagli. Micoletto was brought before the representatives of the Senate for examination. He was placed upon the rack and confessed, among other things, that it was the Pope Alexander himself who had given the command for the murder of the youthful Alfonso of Bizelli. This the magistrate immediately reported to Ferrara. As Caesar was out of the way, Venozza was still able to reckon on the protection of certain powerful friends, especially the Farnese, the Cesarini, and several cardinals. She feared her property would be confiscated, for the title too much of it was questionable. Early in 1504, Ludovico Mattei charged her with having stolen, in March 1503, through her paid servants, 1160 sheep, while Caesar was carrying on his war against the Orsini. These sheep had been sent by Maria d'Aragona, wife of Giovanni Giordano Orsini, to Mattei's pastures for safety. Vanozza was found guilty. She endeavored in every way to save her property. December 4, 1503, she gave the Church of Santa Maria del Popolo a deed of her house on the Piazza Pizzo di Merlo and of her family chapel, reserving the use of it during her life. The Augustinians, on their part, bound themselves to say a Mass for Carlo Canale, March 24th, another October 13th for Giorgio di Croce, and a third on the day of Venozza's own death. In this instrument, she calls herself widow of Carlo Canale of Mantua, apostolic secretary of the deceased Alexander VI, and she speaks of Giorgio di Croce as her first husband. This deed was executed in the Borgo of St. Peter's in the residence of Agapitus of Emilia. From this it appears that at the close of December, Venozza was still living in the Borgo and under the protection of her son's own chancellor, while Caesar himself was a prisoner in the Torre Borgia in the Vatican 
and not until he left Rome forever did she remove from the Borgo. April 1, 1504, a dwelling on the piazza of the Holy Apostles in the Trevi Quarter, which was situated in a district where the Colonna were all-powerful, was specified as her residence. The Colonna had suffered less from others from Caesar, and by virtue of an agreement made with them, they were enabled to retain their property after the death of Alexander. Venazza had sold certain other houses which she owned to the Roman Giuliano de Lenis, and April 1st, 1504, he annulled the sale, declaring that it was only through fear of force in consequence of the death of Alexander that it had taken place. As she now had nothing more to fear, she again took up her abode in the house on the Piazza Branca, as is shown by an instrument of November 1502, in which she is described as, quote, Donna Vanozza di Cataneus of the Regola Quarter, where this house was situated. This document is regarding a complaint which the goldsmith Nardo Antonazzi of the same quarter had lodged against her. The artist demanded payment for a silver cross which he had made for Venazza in the year 1500. He charged her with having appropriated this work of art without paying for it, which he stated frequently happened, quote, at the time when the Duke of Valentino controlled the whole city and nearly all of Italy. We have not all the documents bearing on the case, but from the statements of witnesses for the accused, it appears that she had grounds for bringing a suit for libel. While Venazza may not have been actually placed in possession of the castle of Bleda near Viterbo by Alexander VI, some of its appanage were allotted to her. July 6, 1513, she complained to the cardinal vicar Raphael Riario that the commune of the place was withholding certain sums of money which she claimed belonged to her. This document, which is on parchment, is couched in pompous phraseology and is addressed to all the magistrates of the world by name and title. Venazza lived to witness the changes in affairs in the Vatican under three of Alexander's successors. There the Rovere and the Medici occupied the place once held by her own all-powerful children. She saw the papacy changing into a secular power, and she must have known that, but for Alexander and Caesar, it could never have done this. If, perchance, she saw from a distance the mighty Julius II, for example, when he returned to Rome after seizing Bologna, entering the city with the pomp of an emperor, this woman, lost in the multitude, must have exclaimed with bitter irony that her own Caesar had a part in this triumph, and that he had been instrumental in raising Julius II to the papacy. It must have been a source of no little satisfaction to her to know that this pope recognized her son's importance when he wrote to the Florentines in November 1503, saying that, quote, on account of the preeminent virtues and great services of the Duke of Romagna, he loved him with a father's love. She may also have been acquainted with Machiavelli's Prince, in which the genial statesman describes Caesar as the ideal ruler. Although the power of the Borgias had passed away and their children were either dead or scattered, their greatness was felt in the city as long as Venazza lived. Her past experiences caused her to be looked upon as one of the most noteworthy personalities of Rome, where everyone was curious to make her acquaintance. If we may compare two persons who differed in greatness, but whose destinies and positions were not dissimilar, it might be said that Venazza at that time occupied the same position in Rome in which Letitia Bonaparte found herself after the overthrow of her powerful offspring. 
She looked with pride on her daughter, the Duchess of Ferrara, quote, la plus triomphante princesse, as the biographer Bayard calls her. She never saw her again, for she would scarcely have ventured to undertake a journey to Ferrara, but she continued to correspond with her. In the archives of the House of Este are nine letters written by Vanazza in the years 1515, 1516, and 1517. Seven of them are addressed to Cardinal Ippolito and two to Lucretia. These letters are not in her own handwriting, but are dictated. They disclose a powerful will, a cast of mind that might be described as rude and egotistical, and an insinuating character. They are devoted chiefly to practical matters and to requests of various sorts. On one occasion she sent the cardinal a present of two antique columns which had been exhumed in her vineyard. She also kept up her intercourse with her son Giuffre, Prince of Squilace. In fifteen fifteen she had received his ten-year-old son into her house in Rome, apparently for the purpose of educating him. An expression which Vanozza used in signing her letters defines her attitude and position, quote, the fortunate and unfortunate Vanozza di Cataneus, or, quote, your fortunate and unfortunate mother, Vanozza Borgia. She used the family name in her private affairs, but not officially. Her last letter to Lucretia, written December 19, 1515, which refers to her son Caesar's former secretary, Agapitus of Emilia, is as follows. Illustrious lady, my greeting and respects. Your Excellency will certainly remember favorably the services of Messer Agapitus of Emilia to His Excellency our Duke and the love which he has always shown us. It is therefore meet that his kinsmen be helped and advanced in every way possible. Shortly before his death, he relinquished all his benefices in favor of his nephew, Giambattista of Aquila. Among them are some in the bishopric of Capua, which are worth very little. If your excellency wishes to do me a kindness, I will ask you, for the reasons above mentioned, to interest yourself in behalf of these nephews to whom I have referred. Nicola, the bearer of this, who is himself a nephew of Agapitus, will explain to your excellency at length what should be done. And now farewell to your excellency, to whom I commend myself. Rome, December nineteenth, fifteen fifteen. Postscript. In this matter, your excellency will do as you think best, as I have written the above from a sense of obligation. Therefore, you may do only what you know will please his worthiness, and, so far as the present is concerned, you may answer as you see fit. Vanozza, who prays for you constantly. Vanozza clearly was an honor to the Borgia School of Diplomacy. Agapitus de Gerardi, who wrote so many of Caesar's letters and documents, had remained true to the Borgias, as is shown by this letter, until his death, which occurred in Rome, August 2, 1515. Vanozza, of a truth, had seen many of the former friends, flatterers, and parasites of her house deserted, but a number, among whom were several important personages, remained true. She, as mother of the Duchess of Ferrara, was still able to exert some influence. She was living a respectable life, in comfortable circumstances, as a woman of position, and was described as la magnifica e nobile Madonna Vanozza. She also kept up her relations with such of the cardinals as were Spaniards and relatives of Alexander the Sixth, or who were his creatures. She survived most of them. 
Of the two cardinals, Giovanni Borgia, one had passed away in 1500, the other in 1503. Francesco and Ludovico died in 1511 and 1512, respectively. Cardinal Giuliano Cesarini passed away in 1510. Venazza, in fact, survived all the favorites and creatures of Alexander in the College of Cardinals, with the exception of Farnese, Adrian Castellesi, and Dalbray, Caesar's brother-in-law. By that sort of piety to which senescent female sinners everywhere and at all times devote themselves, she secured new friends. She was an active fanatic, and was constantly seen in the churches, at the confessionals, and in intimate intercourse with the pious brothers and hospitallers. In this way she made the acquaintance of Paul Jovius, who describes her as an upright woman, Donna da Bene. If she had lived another decade, she would probably have been canonized. She endowed a number of religious foundations, the hospitals of San Salvatore in the Lateran, of Santa Maria in Porticu, the Consolazione for the Company of the Annunziata in the Minerva, and the San Lorenzo in Damaso, as is shown by her will, which is dated January 15, 1517. For years there were inscriptions in the hospitals of the Lateran and of the Consolazione, which referred to her endowments, and also to provisions for masses on the anniversaries of her death and those of her two husbands. Venazza died in Rome, November 26, 1518. Her death did not pass unnoticed, as the following letter, written by a Venetian, shows. The day before yesterday died Madonna Venazza, once the mistress of Pope Alexander and mother of the Duchess of Ferrara and the Duke of Valentino. That night I happened to be at a place where I heard the death announced, according to the Roman custom, in the following formal words. Quote, Messer Paolo gives notice of the death of Madonna Venazza, mother of the Duke of Gandia, she belonged to the Gonfalone Company. She was buried yesterday in Santa Maria del Popolo with the greatest honors, almost like a cardinal. She was sixty-six years of age. She left all her property, which was not inconsiderable, to San Giovanni in Laterano. The Pope's Chamberlain attended the obsequies, which was unusual. Marcantonio Altieri, one of the foremost men of Rome, who was guardian of the company of the Gonfalone ad sanctum sanctorum, and as such made an inventory of the property of the Brotherhood in 1527, drew up a memorial regarding her, the manuscript of which is still preserved in the archives of the association and is as follows. We must not forget the endowments made by the respected and honored lady Madonna Vanozza of the House of Catenei, the happy mother of the illustrious gentlemen, the Duke of Gandia, the Duke of Valentino, the Prince of Squilace, and of Madonna Lucretia, Duchess of Ferrara. As she wished to endow the company with her worldly goods, she gave it her jewels, which were of no slight value, and so much more that the company in a few years was able to discharge certain obligations, with the help also of the noble gentleman, Messer Mariano Castellano, and my dear Messer Raphael Casale, who had recently been guardians. She made an agreement with a great and famous silversmith, Caradosso, by which she gave him two thousand ducats, so that he, with his magnificent work of art, might gratify the wish of that noble and honorable woman. In addition, she left us so much property that we shall be able to take care of the annual rent of four hundred ducats, and also feed the poor and the sick, who, unfortunately, are very numerous. 
out of gratitude for her piety and devout mind and for these endowments our honorable society unanimously and cheerfully decided not only to celebrate her obsequies with magnificent pomp but also to honor the deceased with a proud and splendid monument it was also decided from that time forth to have mass said on the anniversary of her death in the church del popolo where she is buried and to provide for other ceremonies with an attendance of men bearing torches and tapers in all devotion for the purpose of commending her soul's salvation to god and also to show the world that we hate and loathe ingratitude thus this woman's vanity led her to provide for a ceremonious funeral she wanted all rome to talk of her on that day as the mistress of alexander the sixth and the mother of so many famous children leo the tenth bestowed an official character upon her funeral by having his court attended by doing this he recognized vanozza either as the widow of alexander the sixth or as the mother of the duchess of ferrara as the company of the gonfalone was composed of the foremost burghers and nobles of rome almost the entire city attended her funeral vanozza was buried in santa maria del popolo in her family chapel by the side of her unfortunate son giovanni duke of gandia we do not know whether a marble monument was erected to her memory but the following inscription was placed over her grave by her executor quote, to venotia catenea mother of the duke caesar of valentino giovanni of gandia giuffre of squilace and lucretia of ferrara conspicuous for her uprightness her piety her discretion and her intelligence and deserving much on account of what she did for the lateran hospital erected by hieronymus picus fiduciary commissioner and executor of her will she lived seventy-seven years four months and thirteen days she died in the year fifteen eighteen november twenty sixth venazza doubtless had passed away believing that she had expiated her sins and purchased heaven with gold and silver and pious legacies she had even purchased the pomp of a ceremonious funeral and a lie which was graven deep on her tombstone for more than two hundred years the priests in santa maria del popolo sang masses for the repose of her soul and when they ceased it it was perhaps less owing to their conviction that enough of them had been said for this woman than from a growing belief in the trustworthiness of historical criticism later owing either to hate or a sense of shame her very tombstone disappeared not a trace of it being left end of chapter eleven